O-L-O-G-Y dot com. I know it's a mouthful, but just think, electromusicology. Shouldn't be too hard. Um, next week, as I said, I'll have Kent Christian live spinning for uh, probably the entire two hours. So you hear more about him and what he's got to play. Uh, so until next week, see you later. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. He's some sort of free-thinking anarchist. I'd like to hear one single on satellite radio because you can't get on regular radio. White youth must choose sides now. You must either fight on the side of the oppressor or be on the side of the oppressor. Yeah, clean up this dingle. Do you think that celebrate is a good thing or a bad thing? Take your time, dear. No, 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 no. That's Shut up. You had your 35 minutes. Shut up. Yeah, yeah, what is this? The uh, Republican fundraiser? Be quiet? We have no right to be quiet. I heartily endorse this event or product. And good morning. You are in tune to KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 on the FM dial, KUCI.org. Glad to be with you on this December 15th, 2005, where we take a look at popular culture. That's right, part two of our examination of pop culture and whether pop culture really makes a difference in the movement for social justice. Last week we took a look at the cover article from the November-December issue of Punk Planet, taking a look at how corporate media is co-opting the uh, underground, if you will, by kind of taking what is cool and indie in the underground and uh, remarketing it for mass consumption. And uh, we took a look at that as some somehow harmful or deleterious to those concerned with uh, independent politics, social justice, and free thinking. Today, we will take a counter-argument, though still rooted in the left, a new, relatively new, maybe about a year old, uh, but certainly highly thought-provoking and important critique of the cultural politics of the left comes from a professor at University of Toronto's Department of Philosophy, Professor Joseph Heath, takes a look at the nation of rebels, why counterculture became consumer culture. He argues that strategies as culture jamming and this obsessive concern over being part of the counterculture is actually causing more harm to the left than good. In fact, the author, along with his co-author Andrew Potter, argue that an obsessive rejection of anything mainstream or conformist has completely replaced socialism as the basis of radical political thought. And by being completely suspicious of the masses, you cannot form a critical mass to bring about a change to the power structure in our society. 
certainly an interesting, interesting argument and uh, one that uh, I'm really looking forward to exploring over the next few minutes. So stick around. Part two of our examination of pop culture. It's going to be a real interesting program today and uh, one you definitely don't want to miss. So stick around. We'll be back in a few minutes with Joseph Heath, Associate Professor of Philosophy and co-author of Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. It's coming up here on Justice or Just Us in just a few minutes.
satisfied customer on the phone lies will be the American dream. I remember we were both out on the boulevard talking revolution and saying the blues. Now today is letters to the editor and cheating on the taxes is the best that we can do. KUCI's Justice or Justice, Steve Earle there, America, the best we can do. And uh, it's a question that uh, is kind of raised in a relatively new book. It's new to me, that's what matters. New book titled Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. In this uh, certainly thought-provoking and important critique of the left, uh, co-author Joseph Heath asks, is culture jamming the best that the left 
can do. Is uh, is there really anything revolutionary about culture jamming, about maintaining independence from the mainstream, from corporate consumer culture? Uh, indeed, uh, the authors, uh, both Joseph Heath and his co-author uh, Andrew Potter, uh, argue that culture jamming and an obsessive rejection of anything conformist has completely replaced socialism as the basis of radical political thought. The very problem, as they see it, is that the idea of counterculture itself is a myth, and it is one that, if it continues to spread and to grow, threatens the true attainment of social justice. We're here to talk about the myth of counterculture and why counterculture became consumer culture is uh, Professor Joseph Heath. He is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. He is the author of uh, many books, including Communicative Action and Rational Choice, a book on the work of Habermas, uh, The Efficient Society, and now Nation of Rebels, which uh, is published as The Rebel Cell Outside the U.S., a title that I actually prefer. Uh, and uh, Nation of Rebels has been translated into Spanish, French, German, and is forthcoming in uh, just about every language possible, including Klingon, I believe. So here to talk about Nation of Rebels is Professor Joseph Heath. Welcome to KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Hi. Hi. Uh, you hearing me okay, by the way? Yes, 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 yes. Great. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. Uh, just one quick question. Why is it called Nation of Rebels in the United States and Rebel Cell outside the U.S.? <laughs> well, because the, the Brain Trust in New York uh, wanted to change the title. Rebel uh, Cell is so much better. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, we, we prefer Rebel Cell, too, but... Um, HarperCollins has its own reasons for doing the things that it does. Um, it, it came out as a Harper, it, you know, it's one of these publishing things. It came out as a Harper business title in the United States, and they therefore thought they were marketing it to a slightly different clientele. Got it. Um, well, than the general reader, so there you go. Well, needless to say, the, uh, the, you know, you don't judge a book by its title, certainly, but... Well, uh, as Canadians, we're kind of joking about the Nation of Rebels title, because... You know, if we were to use that in Canada, it would have to be Nation of Loyalists or something like that. There you go. And okay. uh, the United States certainly is not one right now that has a nation of rebels. I think we, you know, over the past <laughs> few years have been a little too conformist. But uh, be that as it may, uh, let me begin by by uh, telling you that, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, your book has both um, really, really made me think and uh, want to just give you guys a, a great big thumbs up and at the same time make me, you know, really want to smack you around a little bit and <laughs> what's going on here. So let's begin by getting some of the terminology out of the way. Uh, how shall we define counterculture since that's really the, the root of what your book is about or not right. or arguing that there isn't such a thing? Yeah, we're pretty careful at the beginning of the book, actually, to, to, to be clear that we're not criticizing the counterculture as a social movement so much as we're criticizing a set of ideas, uh, what Thomas Frank calls the countercultural idea that became very influential in the 60s, but that has really you know, had a huge influence in a variety of social movements on the left. But the central idea of the counterculture is that it is, is really based on a theory of society that says we live in a sort of all-encompassing system in which the economic system primarily, late capitalism, requires an extensive system of, of, of repression and conformity in order to reproduce itself. And that that, in a sense, 
contaminates our entire culture. And so, you know, Marx thought that, that there was a very specific ideology of capitalism, commodity fetishism, that involved a very specific kind of mistake. What happens is, you know, since Marx, that idea becomes generalized to the point where people come to think that the entire culture is actually the ideology of capitalism. And therefore, in order to pose a radical challenge to the system, you have to reject the entire culture, not just some specific set of beliefs. So that's where this idea of forming a counterculture comes from. It suggests that in order to really reject the system, you have to opt out completely from everything that smacks of conformity or that you know is in any way mainstream. And and that's, I, I mean, I, I'm still reading the book. I, I, it's, I, I was with you. It's finals week, and I don't know. I <laughs> teach as well, and and so forth. So it's it's been a little bit difficult, but. Um, I think I read most of the book in the bookstore before I actually picked it up and then got home and started chapter one. But um, the I think that is really the most important point, at least from me, uh, of what your book discusses. The idea that somehow this idea of radical politics being rooted in building a critical mass uh, has somehow become completely cynical of anything that reaches mass popularity. Yeah. How did this distrust of anything popular, anything conformist, anything that smacks of the word mass in front of it, how did this cynicism come about? It obviously has complex origins, but one of the ones that we diagnose and talk about a fair bit in the book is what, what we take to be something of an understandable, but nevertheless an overreaction to fascism. <laughs> Namely, that the, the, the Marxist idea that, that, or a sort of neo-Marxist idea that culture as a whole had become a system of ideology was around prior to the Second World War. You know, Gramsci was pushing it in the 20s, but it just wasn't very believable. Um, prior to the experience of Nazi Germany. What you saw in Nazi Germany and the, the dominant diagnosis of it afterwards is that you wound up with a system of total ideology developing. And so you got an example of an entire culture of people who sort of, in a sense, went a little crazy. Um, so then it started to be, after the Second World War, it started to become much more believable, this thought, that all of culture, uh, all of civilization, might be a system of, con of repressive conformity. And so in the psychoanalytic critique and reading of fascism and so forth, and then with things like the, 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 the scare over brainwashing in the United States in the 1950s, and then the Milgram experiments in the late 60s and 70s, all of these tended to suggest that conformity was actually a central ill of modern society generally, right? Not It wasn't localized to just Nazi Germany, but that also... You know, as the Milgram experiments famously showed, that your, your, your average American on the street is willing to be an agent of enormous destruction simply when ordered to do so. And I, I think a, a lot of that sort of cumulatively had the effect of suggesting that American society itself was just a kind of friendlier version of the same basic repressive apparatus that you saw in, in, under fascism. Sure. And, it, you know, it's important, uh, one of the things that uh, that chapter that takes a look at kind of how, uh, you know, Marxist or neo-Marxist thought kind of became so cynical or distrustful of anything conformist, you know, one of the things that is important to note in your chapter does is all of the sociological work that has been uh, conducted and performed since the Holocaust looking at the fact that there is, as uh, Hannah Arendt points out, the banality of evil or, or Bauman who took a look at modernity and the Holocaust that uh, you didn't have certain individuals who had evil in their blood. It was a 
sociological phenomenon uh, that included propaganda, that included mass media, and that included an appeal to be part of a mass culture, in this case nationalism. So there is some, you know, I think you're, you're very fair in pointing out that one could understand where this concern came from, but as you just said, it was more of an overreaction. Is that yeah, I, I mean, every theory that acquires widespread popularity usually has some element of truth to it. I mean, there's a reason why things strike people as being plausible. And in the case of, you know, the, the general idea that capitalism requires conformity, you know, the root idea is not implausible. What happens with the counterculture is you get this sort of, this sort of overstatement of that same idea. So, for example, if you look at the view that the, that there's a classic view which has a lot of plausibility that says that the mass production requires a, a certain unreasonable level of discipline on the, on the, on the part of the workers. And so you have to have a kind of de-eroticization of the workforce and they have to be trained to show up on time and so forth. And therefore that the education system plays a role in, in preparing workers for the factories and so on. That, that whole kind of Pink Floyd theory of education. There's something to that. What happens though with the counterculture is you get um, a, a sort of disastrous extension of the same logic, which says that the system requires that kind of conformity, not just on the part of workers who, who go to the assembly line. It also requires the same level of conformity on the part of consumers. You know, because you get the, the, the mass production generates an, a, a, a surplus of goods, you need to have willing consumers in order to absor absorb this overproduction. But of course, because the goods are mass produced, the consumers also have to have identical tastes. And therefore, you get a manufacturing of desire through advertising and so forth designed to inculcate mass consciousness to make people willing to live in suburbs. You know, that's a problematic extension of an otherwise plausible observation because what it suggests is that if you want to rebel against the system, you know, the worker can do it by refusing to conform to the imperatives of the machine on the assembly line, but the consumer can also do it simply by refusing to shop at the gap or by refusing to live in a suburban home or what have you. Right, so that's what gives rise to this whole idea of the rebel consumer sticking it to the man simply by buying something other than what the system wants you to buy. But that's, that's a disastrous idea because that's the idea that leads directly to countercultural consumerism. But in all fairness, there is certainly something to be said about, say, buying fair trade coffee rather than Starbucks or buying, uh, you know, uh, you know, listening to independent media rather than corporate media. I mean, you know. Sorry, sorry not, not to be cantankerous, but Starbucks is the single largest purchaser and seller of fair trade coffee in the world. Right. So the the but but the, based there's, on there's nothing radical about fair trade. In fact, fair trade coffee has become like, an, an enormous source of revenue for Starbucks amongst others. Right. Sure, but I mean to play devil's advocate here. I'm not playing devil's advocate. I mean, Brugger's Bagels is a national bagel chain, and they sell nothing and serve nothing but fair trade coffee. So I think the critique is that when you have uh, a company that has a profit margin as, as uh, large as Starbucks, uh, with, you know, what they pay for coffee versus, you know, uh, for the beans versus what they sell, by avoiding this big chain uh, and, you know, using, you know, the power of the free market, I mean, it's kind of playing the free market against itself. I mean, certainly it's not going to topple power structures in a, in a Marxian, uh, Marxian sense, but are you suggesting that there's, there's no good to come of that? Well, I mean, that type of, of, of 
consumer activism is not a threat to the system. In many ways, it, it demonstrates the, 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 the power and effectiveness of the market mechanism. And, and so in general, what it demonstrates is the fact that the market has the, the ability to correct flaws in precisely or to cater to minority tastes and so on and so forth in exactly the way that its most ardent defenders have always claimed. Where it gets problematic, however, is when people start to engage in acts of consumption. I mean, not, not so much ethical consumption, but rebellious consumption or nonconformity in consumption. When people begin to do that as a source of distinction, in other words, when, when, when what people value about what they're purchasing is the fact that it isn't mainstream, right, or the fact that they present themselves as nonconformist by buying X, Y, or Z, that creates a problem because it generates competitive consumption. Right. Because you can only have that distinction so long as not a lot of other people know about what it is that you're buying or, you know, that it's not a popular taste. And I think you make that point really well uh, in the book. Uh, I wrote down a quote where you talk about um, this observation that the politics of exploitation, which is kind of what, what you know, those who are buying fair trade coffee should be concerned about, uh, you know, the exploitation of, of a worker, uh, has given way to the politics of oppression, meaning that, or, or what I think is actually a better term, repression, where you talk about how now, you know, purchasing fair trade coffee or not shopping at Walmart or things of that nature isn't really about the social justice issue nearly as much as it is as just trying to show that you're a nonconformist. Uh, absolutely. Uh, whenever one thinks about the critique of the consumer society, typically what we imagine is a sort of 1950s suburb with everybody driving a shiny Buick and so forth and a white picket fence um, and engaging in conventional status competition. And we can all easily identify conventional concerns with prestige, you know, driving a Mercedes and so forth. And it's really easy to be a critic of that type of, of consumerism um, because, you know, pursuing that type of status is, in fact, competitive consumption, right? In order to move up that status hierarchy, you have to bump somebody else down. But I think the, 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 the fact that, the, the point that a lot of countercultural radicals have failed to appreciate is that something like cool has exactly the same structure. And counterculture has always been cool. But cool is exactly like, I mean, it's just the equivalent status hierarchy in contemporary urban society. Cool has the same structure as conventional status. In order to be cool, somebody else has to suck, basically. And in order to move up the cool hierarchy, you also have to bump people down. Right. Because cool is almost obsessively concerned with exclusivity. And, and, you know, and like a particular band is cool for a while, right? Until too many other people find out that it's cool, and then they become quote mainstream. And and that and that's divisive. Yeah, and, and also this idea that they become mainstream is misinterpreted as the system having co-opted some form of genuinely radical dissent. Whereas in fact, what gets perceived as co-optation is actually just an effect of competitive consumption amongst rebellious consumers. And so the counterculture itself produces what gets called co-optation. It then gets ascribed to the system, but it's a fundamental error. I want to remind listeners that uh, we're speaking with Joseph. Is it Heath? Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes, yeah. Okay. And he is co-author of uh, a, a really great book, if you can't tell by the level of, of discussion already, uh, titled Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. And he is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. How is it up there in Toronto right now? Uh, it, we're getting about uh, 25 centimeters of snow today. That would be almost a foot by your standards. Thank you for the conversion. <laughs> um, well, let's uh, let's explore this last uh, this last idea. You know, this idea that there's this fear, this paranoia almost of uh, things getting co-opted. Uh, the main argument of your book, one of the main arguments, is that uh, there really 
doesn't exist any tension between mainstream and alternative culture. That cultural rebellion isn't a threat to the system. Indeed, it is the system. Um, you kind of addressed this, but how is this argument different from those of the Frankfurt School, which you're, you're quite critical of? And if you could just maybe give a brief summary of the Frankfurt School for some of our listeners. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the Frankfurt School uh, promulgated an influential hybrid of Marx and Freud. Um, the, I mean, you know, H. Frankfurt School theorist was different in their own way, but well, it, the second chapter of the book is about Freud and about the influence of Freud's ideas on Marx and the reception of the United States, and a lot of that is a kind of tacit discussion of the doctrine of the, of the first-generation Frankfurt School. But, you know, I mean, the, the term co-optation was coined by Marcuse, um, who is probably the most the most sort of accessible member of the Frankfurt School, um, and and the thought was that the system in dealing with dissent it has available it, the tools of repression, right? And that is, you know, if dissent gets really out of hand, then the state has to send in the the police and the brown shirts to quell it. But that prior to to revealing the violence inherent in the system, at fir first the system tries to to have a kind of um, co-optation of it, right, which sort of it tries to sublimate the pressures, and therefore, rather than crushing dissent, it offers people consumer goods as a substitute for the actual freedom that they crave. And so this whole idea of co-optation comes out of Marcuse, and the, the, the function that it serves in countercultural theory is the following. If you look at the sort of radical dissent that gets initiated by the beats in the 50s, gets picked up by the hippies in the 60s, by punks in the 70s and 80s, and by hip-hop today and so on, I mean, you have over 40 years of supposedly radical, radical cultural resistance. Um, there's all of this incredibly subversive stuff that's been going on, apparently, for 40 years. And none of it seems to have changed anything. Politically, of course, it's affected the culture, but it was also it was you know the promissory note was that this was going to have political and economic consequences, right? Like the sexual revolution, for example, it was supposed to undermine capitalism by making the level of discipline required for the factory impossible. Instead, I mean, what has the dominant consequence of the sexual revolution been? The pornography industry, right? Not the overthrow of capitalism. So there were all these promissory notes that were made for all these radical cultural movements, none of which appear to have been redeemed, right? None of this radicalism has actually posed any sort of threat to the system. So the question is, you know, how can you have all this subversion going on and nothing ever changes? The answer is, aha, co-optation, right? That is, the system is a lot sneakier than we thought it was. The fact that, you know, Madonna can burn crosses and dance on her father's grave in a video you know, which appears transgressive, but the fact that it can be broadcast on MTV just shows that capitalism is much sneakier than, than we thought it was. How is and that? what we suggest in the book is just the more obvious conclusion, which is the fact that the stuff that happens in rock videos is just not subversive, right? It's just entertainment, right? That it has no radical political or economic consequences whatsoever. How is that different, uh, well, I, I mean, you probably just answered it, from the idea that, um, you know, I mean, Marcuse would say, see, you know, aha, when Rage Against the Machine gets, you know, a record contract with, you know, this mega corporation Sony, uh, or when, when Michael Moore, you know, gets a, a major, you know, book contract with, you know, HarperCollins and who owns HarperCollins and all this other stuff, therein lies the co-optation. You're saying, well, it... There was no such, there's no such thing as co-optation. Is that how you differ from? You know? uh, that, that's 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 right. So the, the Frankfurt School line is that 
all, all of the fact that all of this quote subversion doesn't ever change anything just shows that the system has uh, is much sneakier than we thought in co-opting dissent. Whereas our, our theory is that there is in fact no co-optation, but what there is is competitive consumption amongst countercultural rebels, and that that's what generates the illusion that there's co-optation. Right, so, so our argument is that the early Frankfurt School misdiagnosed the problem. They took it to be an effect of the system. What they failed to realize was just how competitive the quest for distinction amongst countercultural rebels was. Right, so there is a genuine phenomenon that is, you know, underground music does become mainstream. Underground fashion does become mainstream. Um, you know, I remember a friend of my mother's who was a, a hardcore hippie. Once, when I was in my, I was, I went through a big punk rock phase in the 80s. And she, she once told me how upset she was the first time she walked by a store window and she saw a mannequin with a beard. And she thought that this was an example of co-optation for her. When she told me this, I didn't know what she was talking about. Like, you know, beards, like, what, what's a beard? Like, how is that radical? But she was saying, well, you know, for hippies, wearing a, men wearing a beard was, was radical. You used to get thrown out of restaurants for having a beard. And so the first time she saw a store mannequin, with a beard, she was incredibly upset at the ability of the system to co-opt dissent. Well, you know, the first time I saw a store mannequin with a mohawk, I felt exactly the same way. Oh my God, the system is co-opting dissent. But in both cases, you know, the, you know, there was a failure to realize that the system isn't co-opting anything because there's nothing, you know, radical about the system. Does not care how whether you shave or how you cut your hair. And there are lots of people who are prepared to sell you all kinds of hairstyling products for whatever the latest rebellious uh, style is, right? What was happening simply was that, you know, when, when having a beard was rebellious, that a beard served as a source of distinction. It said, I, in a sense, am better than everybody else because I am not a cog in the machine. Everybody else is a dupe. Everybody else is a man in a gray final suit, but I'm a rebel. And similarly, when I was a teenager, having a mohawk, you know, was a source of distinction, right? Because it said, again, I'm not a cog in the machine. I'm fighting back. Because it's a source of distinction, you know, that's a conventional form of status. And all kinds of other people are going to want to have access to that same distinction. And all kinds of other people are going to be willing to pay for access to that same distinction. So it's not a surprise that you start seeing beards or mohawks on mannequins because, you know, people want to have access to social status, right? That's a major goal of consumption. And so there's... So, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, in both cases, what was going on was uh, competition amongst rebels is being misdiagnosed as co-optation by the system. And that's... I think that that's a really, really important point. So how then... Can the the left progressives, liberals, those concerned with social justice, how do we trans transcend? How do we move beyond this kind of divisive, divisive? You know, trying to make distinctions. You know, who's further out from the mainstream from everyone else? How do we get beyond this? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I, I did want to mention that the, the, this book is a left-wing critique of the countercultural tendency, not not a right-wing critique, right? Uh, I mean, we take a lot of the conservative backlash against the counterculture to basically be reinforcing the same. You know, every time Pat Robertson goes nuts or Rush Limbaugh says something crazy about hippies or whatever, it just reinforces this idea that, in fact, it's genuinely radical to engage in this kind of cultural rebellion. So often the right-wing backlash has just reinforced the same set of ideas that the left-wing counterculture has been promulgating. So, and if I, I, if I can interject for a second, because yeah. I think that that's really important. A couple of years ago when... Um, 
you know, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 was, uh, you know, the big thing I brought onto the show, one of the co-authors of that book, Michael Moore is a Big Fat Liar, or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. And I can't tell you the number of emails and, and, you know, from friends and listeners, you know, why, you know, I've had Howard Zinn on this program and, you know, people at Z Magazine and all of these, you know, lefties. Why am I, you know, trying to expose, if you will, or, or you know, uh, interrogate, you know, this icon of progressive politics? And the truth of the matter is, if, if the left can't look at itself, then we're going to have another 30 years of, you know, you know, fighting windmills. And I, so I do think that it's a really important book, and I want to encourage all the listeners to, you know, listen to what's being said here, because, uh, you know, culture jamming, as much as I, I love it for, for its, you know, creativity and so forth, it's not really going to address the power structures that are behind, you know, exploitation. So, yeah, I think that's an important point, but please continue. Well, what we recommend is is conventional politics <laughs> as opposed to cultural politics. So with the example of culture jamming and advertising and so forth, so we, we share the basic diagnosis that there is a lot of pollution of the mental environment <laughs> and that advertising is, is you know, is, is a social bad. It's undesirable in its excesses. But when you think about it, I mean, what's the more effective strategy, spray painting billboards and making fake ads and so on, or the proposal we have, which has been made by other people as well, which is that the government simply uh, uh, limit the tax deductibility of advertising as a business expenditure. So there's a precedent for it in Canada where the government felt that the amount of money that was being spent on meals and entertainment expenses uh, and being written off by corporations was too high. So they simply reduced the, the deductibility of those expenses to 50%. So you can still take clients out for lunch, but you know the government's only going to recognize half of the half of the bill as a legitimate business expense. You could do exactly the same thing with advertising, and with one little change in the tax code, you would have a massive dampening effect on the overall level of pollution of the mental environment, far far more powerful than all the culture jamming in the world. So, well, again, there's nothing wrong with culture jamming, and both of us are are consume a lot of countercultural entertainment. Like, we're not opposed to the cultural effects of countercultural rebellion. What we're opposed to is the idea that cultural rebellion represents the high road to political change. That is, and the fact the fact is that you know it's a strategy that the left has been trying for 40 years, and it's a losing strategy. Yeah, it's it's almost as if. Being different, being part of a counterculture, is the end in itself, rather than a means to political and structural reform. It's also, you know, one of the things that, that, that's happened in the United States is that you have an almost complete realignment of the political system around essentially cultural issues, you know, away from traditional left-right economic issues. I mean, you know, there's still some alignment, but essentially, you know, it's the it's, it's how do you feel about the 1960s? Is the central division between Democrats and Republicans? And so in many ways, the, the United States and what's happened in the United States is an object lesson to, to those of us on the left outside the United States that it's a bad idea to let culture dominate the political agenda so completely <laughs> um, because it's not only often a losing proposition. I mean, just think, you know, the countercultural view demonizes mainstream society. It basically says that the masses are not only brainwashed, but also potential fascists, right? I mean, there's this deep suspicion of the mass. And that's your central cultural analysis. How are you going to build a mass political party that's going to appeal to the median voter when you've got that deeply embedded view 
of the nature of mass society, right? You're, you're so profoundly alienated already from the mainstream that it seems to me that then allowing those cultural issues to occupy center stage politically is just a recipe for electoral defeat. Certainly. Well, we're just about out of time. Um, do you have a website? Uh, does the book have a website where listeners could get more information? We certainly don't have time to tackle all the, the issues in here, but um, where could people go for more info? Actually, that's where the name change becomes important. Um, the website is rebelcell.com. Okay. Uh, with, so that's the title outside the U.S. Rebel Cell, that's with an S, by the way, not a C. Uh, yes, yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second. Uh, it's a little earlier here. Uh, yes, it's rebelcell.com. The book yeah, is yeah. Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture, and uh, definitely check it out. It's it's a very entertaining uh fun read, you, you make some amazing points that have really started me thinking, and if I could just point out, the way you're able to explain Foucault and, and Freud and, and so forth in, in such nice little pithy paragraphs is uh, really commendable, so makes oh, it you. makes it really easy to uh, to get students turned on to those thinkers, so anyway, uh, Joseph He, thank you so much for being with us today. All right, thanks a lot. Take care. And uh, there you have it. The book is Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. And uh, we will be back in just a couple of minutes on Justice or Just Us. They're expecting you. You're a little late, so I'm just uh, okay? What? Say it now. Say it now. Yeah. Me and the Ohio Pig are gonna tell you about a worm. He's the funkiest worm in the world. Okay, sing it, sir. There's a worm in the ground up here.
Justice or Justice. I want to thank my guest again, Joseph Heath, co-author of Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture. Check it out at rebelsell.com. Really great book, and uh, not enough time to go over all the stuff contained. And uh, you're listening to Ohio Players in the background, sampled from new CD from DJ Jedi, that's the turntablist for Diggable Planets. It's uh, the original Diggable Samples, Blowout Breaks CD. Great stuff. But it's time now to take a look at some of the headlines in the news. Today, parliamentary elections open in Iraq. Voting has begun in the country's first full-term parliamentary elections, Associated Repress. Associated Repress. You could tell we were just talking about co-optation, repression, and so forth. The Associated Press. That's pretty funny. Uh, the Associated Press is reporting a high turnout in Sunni Arab areas, which largely shunned the country's first interim elections last January. Several explosions were reported in Baghdad, including a large one near the U.S.-controlled Green Zone. But it's interesting, listening to National Public Radio this morning, it was interesting to hear how it's considered a calm day because compared to those first interim elections in January, there are less explosions. Imagine explosions on Election Day here. Would we consider that an impediment to getting to the polls, to democracy, so forth? But whatever. Bush acknowledges intelligence mistakes. He actually acknowledged some intelligence mistakes. On the eve of Iraq's elections, President Bush continued his campaign to bolster public support for the invasion of Iraq. He said, quote, When we made the decision to go into Iraq... Many intelligence agencies around the world judged that Saddam possessed weapons of mass destruction. This judgment was shared by the intelligence agencies of governments who do not support my decision to remove Saddam. And it's true that much of the intelligence turned out to be wrong. As president, I'm responsible for the decision to go into Iraq. And I'm also responsible for fixing what went wrong by reforming our intelligence capabilities, and we're doing just that. That is President Bush. 
Although he acknowledged the errors in pre-war intelligence on Iraq's weapons, he went on to defend the decision to invade. Of course, we could hear what President Bush said about intelligence years ago. We gathered a lot of intelligence. That intelligence was good, sound intelligence on which I made a decision. And in order to, you know, placate the critics and the cynics about intentions of the United States, we need to produce evidence, and I fully understand that, and I'm confident that our search will yield that which I strongly believe, that Saddam had a weapons program. There you have it. That was President Bush a couple of years ago talking about having certainty that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. But President Bush went on yesterday to say, given Saddam's history, this is a quote, given Saddam's history and the lessons of September the 11th, my decision to remove Saddam Hussein was the right decision. Saddam was a threat and the American people and the world is better off because he is no longer in power. Evidently, there's some skepticism here in Europe about whether or not I mean what I say. Stop whining! And, uh, and when, you know, we... we What's the matter? Uh, Saddam Hussein clearly now knows I mean what I say. Well, you must be very proud of yourself. And people in Iraq will know we mean what we say when we talk about freedom. Stop it! And uh, we will keep repeating it. You son of a bitch! There you go. Hey, that was uh, George Bush again about uh, two years ago, contrasted with what he said yesterday. Having a little fun with uh, with Bush. Uh, what else going on in the news? Uh, the Patriot Act renewal moves to the Senate as the House approves renewal yesterday. That's right. On Capitol Hill, the House of Representatives... Uh, voted to renew the Patriot Act Wednesday, setting the stage for a showdown in the Senate. A bipartisan Senate group threatens to hold up the bill over concerns it would give the FBI too much power over civil liberties. The Bush administration is lobbying intensively for renewal. Republican leaders are reportedly considering a fallback position that would extend the current Patriot Act by one year if efforts to push through new provisions fail. Meanwhile, the House overwhelmingly approved a non-binding vote Wednesday. Gotta love non-binding votes. A non-binding vote Wednesday in support of Senator John McCain's push for a Senate ban on torture of detainees in U.S. custody. Measure is now being negotiated in Congress. Uh, the White House is pushing for an amendment that would exempt interrogators from punishment. I mean, who else but interrogators would need to be punished for torture? And uh, what else going on in the news? Uh, U.S. government denies entry permits to Cuban baseball team. That's right. The United States government has invoked the Cuba embargo to deny the country's national baseball team permit to take part in a major international tournament that will be played here next March. Officials with Major League Baseball, which is organizing the 16-team World Baseball Classic, say they will appeal the decision. I wonder if Cuba was part of that axis of evil. Not certain. 
Anyway, this is KUCI in Irvine, and uh, hey, stick around. The politics of food is coming up. Definitely stick around for that. Did you know that food has politics? And many people discuss politics, surprisingly, over food, so there you have it. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another Justice or Just Us. We are now podcasting this program. Log on to KUCI.org if you actually want to hear it a second time. Of course, if you're listening now, you'd know it's being podcast, but you've heard the show, so you wouldn't need to podcast. You could tell that I'm a little punchy this morning, so I'm going to go. It's KUCI in Irvine. KUCI.org. Peace.